Good morning. Ooh, my mic is much louder than hers, so that's your wake-up call. Uh, very glad to be with you this morning. My name is Gray. I am the pastor here at this church, and uh, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. If you're first time here, maybe you've been here a few times, maybe you came last week and you used porta-potties outside, uh, thank you for coming back again. Uh, speaking of which, the reason we had the porta-potties is we were renovating our bathrooms uh, last Sunday and actually the last two weeks, uh, planned strategically to just be over one Sunday. They are or should be uh, in operation this morning. And I was asked to tell you that there's still some touch-ups to come. There's still some, some things that we need to do there. Uh, so it's not perfectly done yet, but it should be functional. Let me know if it's not. Um, we have been in a series looking at the kings of Israel and really looking to Jesus as our king as we come and behold, come and worship, come and adore the newborn king as we sing about really taking that theme and saying, but where, where does this expectation come from that we would need to look for a king? And we see that really the, the scriptures themselves talk about this at great length, this desire that we have for authority, this desire that we have for someone in whom we can place our trust and our adoration and give our obedience to. And so that theme is threaded throughout the scripture in a both positive sense, meaning we have kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. David has been mentioned a number of times. Solomon that we're going to be talking about today. Even Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, started out so well. And so there's a positive sense in which the kings show us the, the thing that we're actually looking for. But there's also the negative image, the side that we see that these kings called as they are, good men as they are, um, the appointed men of God that, that, that he had set on the throne himself are not going to be the kings that we need ultimately to look to. And so we've looked at Saul, we've looked at David, today we're looking at Solomon. Next week we will look at Jesus Christ as we come up to Christmas Day and Christmas week. But today we're in 1 Kings, looking at Solomon. And before we dive in today, let's just go to the Lord in prayer once more. Father, we know that you are here and that you are the king. You are the newborn king. You are the perfect king. You are the crucified king. You are the risen king. You are the coming king. All of these are true. This season, we are looking at you as the newborn king. In this season where we prepare our hearts to dwell on and think about your incarnation, that you would add flesh to your divinity, that you would be both God and man and the king of all the earth and heaven. And so I pray, Father, as we begin to focus our hearts on you, that you by your spirit, would make us alive to you, make us aware of you, make us want to come to you, make us want to look to you, to see you as the desire of nations, the dear desire of nations, and the desire of our own hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's, there's a mythical story that uh, has, has captured the imagination of really the Western world for many years. I'm sure that you've heard it before. It's a, it's a cautionary tale about Icarus. 
uh, Daedalus and Icarus, sometimes uh, the story is, is told, and most people don't know the full story of Icarus. It's very complicated. It's from Ovid's Metamorphosis, and, and, um, and there's a lot going on in that story, but the important part that has captured the imagination of the Western world, the, the, the part that is kind of glued in our minds is the fall of Icarus. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, but Daedalus was um, his father, and Daedalus was a great inventor, and even though the story is complicated for complicated reasons, he is imprisoned uh, by Minos, the king of Crete, and he is with his son Icarus. They are in this prison cell. And Daedalus was a great inventor and had great wisdom. And so to escape this prison, he constructs wings made out of beeswax and feathers. And as the story goes, he meets one set for himself and one set for his son Icarus. And so he gives his son this gift of great wisdom, of great invention. But he also issues a stern warning to him. This is from Ovid's Metamorphosis. This is what Daedalus says to Icarus. Let me warn you, Icarus, to take the middle way in case moisture weighs down your wings if you fly too low or if you go too high, the sun scorches them. Travel between the extremes. And I order you not to aim towards Boots, the herdsman, or Helis, the great bear, or towards the drawn sword of Orion. These are the stars. Take the course I show you. So Icarus acknowledges this and they begin their flight. They put on these wings and they fly out of the prison. And it begins well as they stay together. But then Icarus famously becomes intoxicated by his new flying abilities. And then Ovid says this about Icarus. Icarus, drawn by desire for the heavens, soared higher. If you know the story, he soars too high. His wings are melted. The wax that holds together the feathers melts in the sun, and he falls down and dies in the ocean. And Daedalus finds him there and weeps over him. The son receives a great gift of wisdom from the father, then becomes intoxicated with that desire and falls. The reason why this story captures our imagination, it's told so often, is that it's, this, it's a true story of the world. It's, it's something that we've experienced often in our cultures. And it's the story of Solomon. Solomon was given a great gift of wisdom from his father, but then out of a desire for the heavens, he soars too high. He becomes intoxicated with his gift. And I've mentioned before that uh, we're not here to trash talk the kings of Israel. Uh, That sometimes bothers me, honestly, when I hear preaching like this, where we just set up to fail all of these uh, men and women who lived in the Scriptures. Um, The truth is, what we're told in this passage is that Solomon... There is no one before him and there's no one after him for wisdom. This is a man who knew things that none of us will ever know. This is a person who knew things about God that we will hardly ever come close to fathoming. We just spent 16 weeks earlier this year looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the Scriptures. It is a book of wisdom. It's, 
it's just scratching the surface to talk about that book and the wisdom that's there. So we're not here to offer a personal judgment uh, on, on these men that God appoints. They are the Lord's anointed. And so we want to be fair and recognize how far we have fallen from our lack of wisdom. And it's, it's good for us to be sobered by their stories, but it's good for us to still hold them in honor. But we, one thing that we can say, even though we're not here to trash talk them and offer our own personal judgment, we can say that as wise as Solomon is, he is not the king that we are looking for. We can certainly go that far because we are looking for a king who uses his wisdom in service to others rather than in service to himself. That's what we are looking for. When we look for a wise king, we are looking for the one who will consistently and always use his wisdom in service to others rather than in service to himself. And this is exactly what Solomon began doing. He started off doing well in using his wisdom for the people of God. But eventually, he soared too high with a great desire for the heavens and he turned inward, and he used his wisdom for, in service to himself. Let's look at his story and then see what kind of king we are looking for. First, I want to look at how wisdom is gained, and then I want to look at how wisdom is lost, and then finally, how wisdom is embodied. There are three things this morning. The first one, how wisdom is gained. Truly, Solomon gains wisdom from the Lord he is the wisest person who has ever lived. How is wisdom gained? There are three ways here that we're told that wisdom, that Solomon approaches this idea of wisdom and then God grants it. The first way that wisdom is gained is by humility. By humility. Look at verse 5 with me of 1 Kings chapter 3. It says this, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of a people who you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. This is the way that Solomon begins his request for wisdom by humility. God appears and gives him this, this invitation in a dream. Solomon, ask what you will, and Solomon begins well because he begins on his knees. He begins by asking for help. He says, I need wisdom. He shows his humility in three ways. He says, first of all, I'm humbled by my heritage. In verse 6 and 7, Solomon says, I know that you were with David, my father. His heritage, he knows that David, his father, was a man after God's own heart. He's humbled by the fact that he's coming from David and after David. David, the model of righteousness. David, the model of zeal. A man after God's own heart. Solomon is right to be humbled by his heritage. 
He's also humbled by his inexperience. He says in verse 7, I'm but a little child. I'm a lad. I do not know how to go out or come in. He's young. He's inexperienced. I don't know the proper, proper protocols for being a king. He's green. Solomon is about 20 years old, perhaps, at this time. He's humbled by his age, his youth, his inexperience. So he's humbled by his heritage. He's humbled by his inexperience. He's also humbled by the task. Verse 8, you've placed me at this people. You have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. He's humbled by the task. Not only am I coming from impressive stock into, a, into a, a context where you have been faithful to David, my father, not only am I young, but think about what you're asking me to do in being king of Israel. This people, there's a great multitude here. How can I possibly do this? There's a beautiful little reference in these verses that Solomon seems to be uh, acknowledging here to the Abrahamic covenant when he says... Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. That Some of that language comes from the book of Genesis. If you know the story of Abraham, God comes to Abraham, he, he sets apart Abraham, and Abraham becomes the patriarch of God's great people. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then part of the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 15 is this, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Solomon picks up this language and says he's aware of the task that God has given him. Not only is this people great, a great number of them, but he knows that he's part of the story of God who has called out Abraham and has brought him to this place of having a great multitude, Solomon is aware that this would be something that he shouldn't mess up. He's humbled. Wisdom begins by humility. Wisdom also is found or gained by request. By request. Giving his... Humility preamble, then Solomon proceeds to do what God asked and ask for something. He says in verse 9, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? He makes his request of God, and his request is for wisdom. And note, what the wisdom is for. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. The purpose of the wisdom that he requests is so that he could lead God's people well. It was supposed to be in service to God's people. The wisdom was not for himself. The wisdom was for others. Wisdom is gained by humility, but also by request. This is not just where the only place in the Scriptures where we see this. We know this is the case in the New Testament as well. In James chapter 1, we're told that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
If you lack wisdom, ask for it, James says. And that's certainly the case here. God gives wisdom because Solomon asked for it. And God is pleased. In verse 10, it pleased the Lord that, the, that Solomon had asked this. And then we are told that God not only grants this wish of Solomon, but he gives them something more. He favors him even more. He gives him riches and honor, not just wisdom. This is how wisdom is gained. It's gained by humility. It's gained by request. Third, it's gained by worship. We didn't really read these sections, but just before this section and right after it, we're told that Solomon sacrifices a thousand bulls before, and then after he wakes up from this dream, he actually goes out and worships in the temple. He sacrifices again. And so it's an appropriate response to what God has done for him. And there's really two aspects of that worship. It's obedience and sacrifice. God calls him to obey. That wisdom, even though it's given by God, it is secured by a certain type of obedience. There's a conditional element to this. Look at verse 13. Uh, sorry, verse 14. And if you walk, will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And so he, he gives him the, the wisdom that he requests, he, he imputes that to him, but he also says that you will lengthen your days and you will have greater wisdom if you continue to walk with me and are obedient to me. And then Solomon sacrifices to God in thanksgiving. Wisdom is gained by humility, by request, and by worship. And right after this, we didn't read this section either, there's a famous story in the very next section of 1 Kings chapter 3, where Solomon demonstrates his wisdom. Right after this passage, we have the famous story of the women who are fighting over the child. It's a child, and the one woman says, I'm the mother, and the other woman says, I'm the mother, and Solomon has to dispute with great judgment and justice this situation. And he famously says, divide the child. Hyperbolically, he says, take this child and cut it in half, and one, one of you can have one half and one can have the other. And then, of course, the real mother says, don't do that, just give them to her. And so, in so doing, he reveals who the, the mother is. And that is an example of his wisdom being in service in governance to the people of God. This is how wisdom is gained. But it's not the only story that we are looking at today, sadly. We need to see how wisdom is lost. How wisdom is lost. And we've skipped ahead to 1 Kings chapter 11, which my Bible anyway gives the subtitle, Solomon Turns from the Lord. And really what was interesting in reading this, these two passages together this week is in so many ways, they are mirror images of one another, which I've never noticed before. That the wisdom that is gained in 1 Kings 3 is slowly lost progressively in 1 Kings 11. Each of the three things that Solomon gains, he loses, in other words. Humility, request, and worship. 
First, humility turns to pride. We're told, let's read together the first three verses of 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon loved many women. We're told with sickening detail the numbers. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, let's balance this a little bit, just a little bit. Those are probably round numbers, if that helps at all. (laughs) Okay, this is also not at one time, if that helps at all. This is over his life, most likely. This is someone writing past the event, looking back. If it helps at all, (laughs) many of these marriages surely were political alliances Maybe, some, maybe many of them, maybe some of them in name only. And this is over the course of his lifetime. But the point remains, the point remains, even if this is round numbers, even if this is political, even if this is not um, as extreme as some of us might picture immediately in our heads, the point is that he loved many women and he was drawn away. For his love from the Lord. And we must know that this is not just about love. It's not just about lust. This is about pride. This is about conquest. This is about envy and political power. Surely many of these marriages were political arrangements showing the wealth and influence and the power that Israel had to have all of these alliances. And so we're we're to see those extreme numbers not just as something that is wrong to do, which it certainly is, but also as a picture of how far Solomon had gone away from the covenant. That he has accumulated all of this pride, these women, and this power, and has become intoxicated with it. And so his humility, beginning in humility, turns to pride. But then his request, his request of the Lord, we actually see a mirror image in the request from his wives. His request turns to manipulation. Remember how Solomon made the request for wisdom. Now he's the one who's entertaining requests. And his wives turned away his heart from the Lord. We know that Solomon's wives asked him to build shrines for their gods. They wanted to worship the gods of their homelands, and so he began to have to give in to these requests. And so Solomon's role seems much less to be about him actively wanting to worship other gods, and, much, and rather much more him capitulating to the demands of others, giving in, giving in to, and walking away from the Lord, and his love of the Lord growing less. Do you notice at the end of verse 2 here, we're told that Solomon clung to these in love, to all of these women. It's an interesting phrase there. He clung to them in love. It actually is the same word, again, 
of the covenant in Genesis. The covenant of marriage. Adam and Eve, we're told, Moses writing the book of Genesis gives us an editorial in the story of Adam and Eve, and he institutionalizes marriage. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, or cleave to his wife, the old language. Leave and cleave. It's the same word here for Solomon. He clung to them in love. And so we see here Solomon doing more than just being disobedient to God and just growing in pride. He actually is reversing the covenantal intention. Instead of one woman before one God, as the marriage covenant is intended, Solomon cleaves to many women before many gods. So his request turns to request to him and are manipulating him away from the Lord. And finally, worship, which is how he began, turns to idolatry. That is false worship. Look at verse 5 with me. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Interesting description here of Solomon's idolatry. We're told that he worshipped Ashtoreth and Milcom, which are interesting words, interesting ways of spelling the gods that the other Canaanite people worshipped. Actually, the goddess' name, the first is actually Ashtart. We're told that he worships Ashtoreth. It's an intentional misspelling or a play on words. Ashtart was a, the goddess of fertility in the Canaanite deities. And the word has been intentionally altered a little bit, many think. So that it looks like the Hebrew word for bosheth, which is the word for shame. So there's a play on words here, almost certainly, that Solomon in worshiping Ashtart was also demonstrating his shame. Milcom is the same God as Molech. And again, there's an intentionality in the misspelling or the altering of the word so that it looks almost like the word Melech which is the word for king. And so, he was worshiping the so-called king, we might say, of Molech. His gods become his shame, and his king becomes a false king, in other words. Heavy with irony. His worship started out in obedience and sacrifice, and ended with disobedience and sacrifice to false gods. We should pause here and ask ourselves some questions about our own wisdom, how we lose it. How is it that whatever wisdom is gained is often lost? And what I want us to see is that it's gradual. It's gradual. Solomon did not outright reject God. He slowly lost his devotion to God. 
That's how wisdom is lost. It's lost slowly. As our hearts become not wholly true, wholly devoted, as the passage says, to the Lord his God. What happened in Solomon's case was that slowly his love was displaced. His love did not go away. We are loving creatures. We are desiring creatures. We are built with affections and emotions and a propensity to worship whatever is good and true and beautiful to us. It is not as though we lose our love of the Lord so much as we are, our love is displaced. We're bent towards certain desires, and what happened to Solomon was not that he stopped loving God, but that he began to love other things more. Women, pleasure, power. And all of that love displaced his devotion to the Lord. That's how wisdom is lost. And it's important for us to ask ourselves this question. What is it that we love? What is it that we obey? What is it that we worship? What is it that we cleave to? When Solomon clung here to the women, it displaced his love. And we can ask ourselves, where is my humility slipping? When we, when we think about our lives and, and what we feel entitled to. Maybe we have stopped requesting wisdom from God, like Solomon stopped requesting. He, bega- he began requesting, but then he stopped. And maybe our lives have slowly become more about ourselves and what we're entitled to and us calling the shots. What about our hearts and worship? What does your heart love? What does it cling to? What do you give your time and attention to? Your obedience and your sacrifice. This is the place where the love of God and the wisdom of God is lost. What's the answer? It's true, I think, for all of us that we love things that are not God. And that if we are not careful, the wisdom slips out of our life where we begin to cling to things that are not Him. What is the answer? How do we gain back that wisdom? And how do we have even a model for this? Because Solomon is not it. He is the model of wisdom, but he's also the cautionary tale of wisdom. And the answer is we don't need the wisest man who ever lived. That's helpful. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I love the Proverbs. That's helpful to have the wisest man who ever lived. But we actually need wisdom itself embodied. Third and finally this morning, how wisdom is embodied. With all of Solomon's wisdom, it will not be enough for us. In fact, it's not even enough, enough as David. You notice the painful remarks here twice. Once in verse 4, once in verse 6. Let's read verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Second time in the passage that it's, that's happened. That's ouch. Ouch. 
Remember, that's exactly what Solomon requested. That's exactly why he began with humility. I want to be like my father, David. But we see that even with all of Solomon's wisdom, we've begun a slide down. And that slide will continue throughout the kings, through Solomon's sons who divide the kingdom and beyond. The heritage of Solomon's father will never be reached again until Jesus Christ, great David's greater son. The wise king that we need is Jesus. And there's two reasons for that. He had wisdom greater than Solomon's, but also he is wisdom in service of the people. He had wisdom greater than Solomon. And the scriptures are very mysterious on this point. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 52, for instance. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What does it mean that God incarnate increases in wisdom? That is a mystery for another sermon, I guess. But what's important to see is that he followed the pathway of Solomon. Like Solomon, when Jesus was a young man, he was growing. And like Solomon, requesting this wisdom. Like Solomon, he was going to the Father and saying, I need this. And in humility, Jesus followed the same path. He would often you know, break away to be with the Father and to ask for his wisdom. And he grew in wisdom. So much so that people are shocked by it. Matthew chapter 13 tells us the story of Jesus coming to his hometown. And he, he teaches them in the synagogue. And what do they say? They're astonished. Where did this man get his wisdom? And these mighty works. Jesus grew in wisdom and in fact grew beyond Solomon. He not only had wisdom he is wisdom. Colossians chapter 2. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that is wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. Solomon had great wisdom, but Christ embodies wisdom. He is wisdom. Which is why he can be so bold as to make the claim that he does in Matthew chapter 12. When he says about himself, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah and something greater than, than Solomon, he says in Matthew 12, is here. And he's talking about himself. Christ is greater because he had greater wisdom and he is wisdom itself. Wisdom embodied. As we await Christmas morning... We're going to celebrate Jesus being embodied, coming in the flesh. And we have to recognize that as we're waiting for that, what we're waiting for in part is a king who will give us wisdom and be our wisdom. He is the wisdom that the world needs. He's who we need. As we come and bow before him and adore this newborn baby, we give our obedience and our worship, the things that God required of Solomon, to this child. Why? Because 
His wisdom is in service to his people. The, thing, the king that we're looking for is the wise king who will give everything for his people. That's what Solomon had and lost. He had a governing spirit that this wisdom is for this people, but he lost it and used it in service to himself. But Christ came to teach us wisdom so that we can be wise forever with him. He modeled wisdom so that we could see what life with the Father would be like, so that we could walk in wisdom to be like him, to be with the Father and learn to see him. And of course, he laid down his life completely in service of God's people so that we could be wise to salvation, so that we could have something that we would not have otherwise. All of Christ was given in service of God's people. And so therefore, he is the king, the wise king that we look to. Let's pray.